Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. I'm going to need some prayer. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Well, this is, um, this is a rather odd story. Jesus is eating with some friends, and a woman cries on his feet, and then dries them with her hair, and then rubs expensive, smelly oil on them. For some unknown reason, this story seemed to take up residence in my head about 15 years ago. It stayed there for a week or two, and I finally pulled out some reference books. I started studying this story, started reflecting on it, and um, it seemed to take up residence not only in my head, but my heart as time went on. And I think over the last years, it's actually gotten into my soul. It's, a, it's one of my favorite Bible verses. And with Pastor Brett taking time to meet a prior obligation this weekend, I was asked to give the message. And so with your indulgence, uh, I'd like to share with you why this Bible verse, why this Bible story has come to mean so much to me. The story begins with Simon. Now, Simon's a Pharisee, and he invited Jesus home for dinner. One commentary I read said that for Simon to do this, to invite a very well-known rabbi to his house for dinner, he not only had a certain standing in the community, but he also probably had a very nice house. As was customary in the time, it might have been built in a square or a rectangle, and it had a large open-air courtyard in the center, which was accessible by a gate to the outside world. Often on warm evening, evenings in the Middle East, dinner would be served outside in the courtyard. The story takes place around a dining room table, but don't think it's a dining room table like we have. It might have only been three or four inches high. It might have just been a mat on the ground. The, the, the dinner people who ate there probably sat on the ground on cushions or futons or something like that. The dinner was probably lengthy. It was probably two or three hours. Our text points out, quote, that Jesus reclined at the table, quote. I picture him lounging on one hip and one elbow and using the other arm and hand to eat food. When he reclined, his feet would have been off to the side or maybe behind him. Another commentary pointed out that such dinner parties were open to the public. Because Jesus was formally invited, he had a seat at the table along with the other formal guests. But the culture of the day encouraged uninvited guests to come and sit in the background. They didn't participate in the food or the conversations, but they were free to watch and listen. For them, it was a vicarious dinner party. They didn't eat, they didn't talk, but it was great entertainment. Perhaps they came and went based on the intensity of the table conversation. This dinner takes place late in Jesus' ministry, so he was probably well-known, and I would imagine there were many attenders of that meal. Our scripture takes only a couple of minutes for JP to read, but it was a long, multi-hour conversation, and so we just have a snippet of what went on that evening, but it's an important snippet. Sometime during the dinner, a woman comes in and locates herself behind Jesus, and she starts to cry, very emotional. 
She is positioned and her tears fall on Jesus' feet and she begins to wash his feet. And then she dries them with her hair. And, and then she, she anoints them or, or, or massages them with this oil that she's brought. The events cause Simon to give a little attention. And he notes something that the scripture is very specific here. Simon, quote, talks to himself, unquote. I assume that he uttered no words, or at most he mumbled something under his breath that couldn't be well understood. He was thinking that the woman's behavior was inappropriate, and if Jesus was a real rabbi, he would know that. It's interesting that Jesus, quote, answers, quote, his thoughts, and he tells him a parable, only it's really more of a riddle than a parable. Simon sees this as a question about arithmetic. 500 is bigger than 50. I loved Dorita's children's moments on this. This lady is a saint. 500 is bigger than 50, but it seems clear to me that Jesus was talking about the gratitude and joy for hope that follows in a time of hopelessness. The greater the hopelessness, the greater the hope and the gratitude that follow. Anyway, Jesus tells Simon that he got the right answer, and then he proceeds to reprimand him for his poor hospitality. He tells the woman her sins are forgiven, which causes some commotion among the other guests who have really haven't said anything to this point in the story. And finally, Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. And he blesses her by saying, go in peace. That's the story that I see in my mind's eye. But it raises an important question. It raises a few important questions. What meaning did that story have to us today in 2019? One of my heroes, Thomas Merton, says, or said, we don't read the Bible as much as the Bible reads us. In other words, the meaning that one finds in the Bible may say a lot more about the reader than it does about the Bible. So be aware, this is how this story speaks to me. If you have a different contemplation or a different understanding, I'd love to hear it. First, let me say, I don't think this story is about Simon or the others at the table. I don't think it's even a story about Jesus, at least not directly. I don't think this is a story about the dinner party. I'm not even sure it's a story about this odd picture of the woman crying on Jesus' feet. It seems to me that it's a story about something much, much deeper that's going on at that meal, something that's below the surface, something that can't be seen. Somehow it appears that the woman is at the center of this deeper thing that can't be seen. But isn't it interesting that she's a woman in a man's world? She isn't even given a name in this story. She doesn't even have a voice in this story. There's no dialogue from her. But nonetheless, there's something deep going on, and this woman's at the center of it. Because she doesn't talk, we really don't know what that deep thing is that's going on. We're left to guess. Why did she go to that dinner? Why did she cry over Jesus' feet? Why did she bring that expensive oil? Why the extravagance? Why the emotion? Jesus gives us a hint at the answer, I think, with his parable or his riddle. When he says, 
when he talks about the gratitude for hope that follows a period of hopelessness. It seems to me that something powerful must have happened to her just prior to that dinner. Perhaps it was earlier in the day, or maybe it was a day before, but I don't think it was too long before the dinner. Could it be that she heard Jesus in the countryside or witnessed him healing somebody or heard him teaching? We don't know. I get the impression that somehow or another, Jesus had led her to some life-changing, transformative experience. Could it be that somehow now she felt the presence of God's love? Not in some abstract, esoteric way, but in a very real and very personal way. Could it be that after years of pain and suffering in personal relationships, now, for the first time in her life, she profoundly felt God's unconditional love. For the first time in her life, she knew she was loved. My search for meaning in this scripture led me to reread one of my favorite theologians, Henry Nouwen. He, he, he was a theologian of last year, last century, I think many of you know him. He died in 1996. Nouwen was a prolific Jesuit priest last century who devoted much of his time to the mentally ill. Among his writings, he is known for this great line. I love this line, quote, God loves you, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it, unquote. <laughs> there's nothing you can do to make God love you one ounce more or one ounce left, or one ounce less. This love is a love so deep that we give it a special name, grace. God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. But as true as that is, it doesn't tell the whole story. Because we know of people for whom Nouwen's words will be rewritten. God loves them, and they're totally unaware of it. Yes, God loved this woman from the day she was born. Probably loved her before she was born. But could it be that she'd been totally unaware of it? Now, for the first time, perhaps Jesus showed her that she was thoroughly and completely accepted, even with all her flaws and imperfections and a life of wrongdoing. I have the distinct feeling that her first step toward loving God and neighbor was to love herself. When she heard Jesus was going to be at Simon's dinner party, she just had to go. She was overflowing with thankfulness, and she had to express it. She stopped long enough to get her greatest possession, that alabaster jar. I'm not sure she really knew what she was going to do with it, but she knew she had to share it with Jesus. When she arrived, she was so overcome with gratitude and hopefulness that she wept for joy. Her tears were moisture enough to clean Jesus' feet, and having no towel, she just dried them with her hair and poured out her expensive oil. The oil was, the jar was being empty as she was being filled filled with faith. And Jesus says later, your faith has saved you. It's said that the longest journey begins with the first step. And when Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you, I hear him saying that she has taken the incredible, important first step on her journey of faith. It's not the end of her journey, but now, at last, she's on the right path. I think she knew she was on the right path. The second way this, this, uh, this story has spoken to me over the years is totally different. It's spoken to me through its subtitle, 
a sinful, a sinful woman forgiven. All of, have you noticed in your Bible that all the stories have a subtitle just before them, usually in bold? When Luke wrote this story, he didn't put any subtitles in it. He didn't even put any chapter numbers or verse numbers. He just wrote out a long story. These subtitles and chapters and verses to our Bible were added during the Middle Ages by scribes and monks. They're now called paratext, something that's close to the original, but not really. Well, I think the old scribe or monk that chose this particular subtitle during the Middle Ages got it wrong. A sinful woman forgiven. Yes, the Bible does say she is sinful, and yes, she was forgiven. But the story also says Simon was not hospitable. And being not hospitable is a serious violation of Jewish law. So why didn't the monk choose the inhospitable Pharisee? Well, maybe he didn't choose that title because that's not what the main theme of the story is. We're left to explore what is the main theme. And the main theme, in my opinion, just me, is not the woman's sinfulness. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. The main theme for me in this story is the woman's newly found unconditional love. She opened herself to grace. If I were going to subtitle this story, I'd say, God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Or I'd say, accept grace, change your life. Or I'd say, amazing grace. Because of my wrestling with this subtitle 15 years ago, I now find myself questioning all Bible subtitles. <laughs> When I ponder a particular story in the Bible, I find myself saying, the old monk got it right this time, or the old monk screwed up again. <laughs> the third thing that speaks to me about this story is the fact that it's told in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very few biblical stories bear uh, that honor. The Christmas story doesn't. None of the parables are told in all four Gospels. But this story is told in all four Gospels. And when Matthew and Mark tell this story, they add the following dialogue of Jesus, one sentence by Jesus, addition. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whenever the Gospel is preached, what she has done must also be told in memory of her. Wow, what an interesting statement. Whenever the Gospel is preached... What she has done must be told in memory of her. Why did Jesus say that? What did she do that must be told in memory of her? Well, she washed Jesus' feet. And as far as I'm aware, we have some pastors in the house like Jenny. Maybe they know better. But as far as I'm aware, she's the only one to ever wash Jesus' feet. We remember that Jesus washed the disciples' feet in the book of John just before the Last Supper. But nobody ever washed Jesus' feet except for this unnamed woman with no voice. But I've got a feeling that Jesus is re referring to something deeper than foot washing. Maybe we should remember that, maybe we should remember her because she was one of the first people to demonstratively receive and give thanks for grace. To say it another way, she let Jesus 
She let Jesus' message have room in her heart. I love this old saying that the life of Jesus is a life of no room. Don't know if you've heard that, but the life of Jesus was a life of no room. There was no room at, in the inn before he was born. There was no room for him in his, in his Jewish religion that he loved. There was no room for him in, with the disciples when he was in his greatest hour of need. His life was a life of no room. But here, this unnamed woman without a voice gives Christ room in her heart. Is that what she did that must always be told in memory of her? To be honest, I don't know. I'm not sure. After 15 years, I'm still sitting with this story. But it seems to me that growing in our awareness, our acceptance, and our thankfulness for grace must be at the very heart of the Christian gospel. Finally, the last thing that speaks to me in this story is, is Jesus' last three words. He looks at her and says, go in peace. Because we close every worship with shalom, we know that these three words are shorthand for the blessing and the peace of wholeness that is found in the Jewish shalom. So I'd like to try something. This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Let's give this woman not the standard shorthand three-word blessing. Let's give her our own longhand blessing. I'll slowly recite the lyrics of Shalom, and as I do, I would like you to imagine for a minute that Jesus is speaking these words to an unnamed woman with no voice who we must always hold in our memory. Try to see that picture as vividly as you can. And Jesus said to the woman, Shalom to you now. Shalom, my friend. May God's full mercies bless you, my friend. In all your living and through all your loving, Christ be your shalom. Christ be your shalom. Amen. Amen. And now for a, a moment of silence, let us reflect on the message. We, we obviously live in a very different time from the time that it was written 2,000 years ago. We have the Me Too movement. We have the fabulous woman's soccer team. We have gender equality. We have equal pay for equal work. It's a different time. But what is the timeless message of this story? Why did Jesus say we should always keep this unnamed, unvoiced woman in our memory? Amen.